go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. That's going to be where we camp out this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Romans chapter 13 on page 892. So turn there, uh, look at verse 8 and following, and we are going to to walk through it together and think together about uh, about love, about... um, about how to love others and how uh, loving others well uh, effectively is fulfilling the law uh, of, of God. So we're going to think about what love is and how it looks like. If you'll remember kind of the, the broad overview of uh, the book of Romans, uh, the first 11 chapters that we worked, uh, worked through um, are, are all doctrine, right? The doctrine of Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us. Um, and the, the effects of the gospel in our lives, the nation of Israel, like looking at God's faithfulness uh, in various contexts. Uh, Romans 12 and following that we've been going through since New Year's um, is not, not so much about uh, doctrine and, and um, you know, who God is and what he has done, but it's about application. How we as Christians are to live in light of the doctrine that we have seen and, and uh, heard and learned in the first 11 chapters. And so we've seen kind of how Christians are to relate to uh, God uh, by worshiping him, how, they're, how we're to relate to ourselves by being humble instead of uh, prideful, how we're to relate to the church by committing to it and being faithful to it and serving in it, how the Christian is to relate to their neighbor, to love and serve and care and contribute how the Christian is to relate to their enemy, to, to love them and forgive them, and to not take revenge against them when they're sinned against. How the Christian is to relate to the civil government, to submit to it and obey it, because God is the one who established it and put it in place. And now in the latter half of chapter 13, we're going to look again at how Christians are to relate to their neighbor, to other people in society. And the two big overarching points, like I said, one is... Uh, Christians are to love their neighbor because in so doing, they are fulfilling the law of God. That's verses 8 through 10. And then the second point is to uh, put aside uh, the deeds of darkness and walk in the light of Christ. That's verses 11 through 14. So love your neighbor to fulfill God's law and put aside the deeds of darkness and walk in light of of Christ. So that's where we're headed this morning. I'm going to read Romans 13, 8 through 14, then we're going to pray and get to work. It reads, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment. All of them are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read and study your word. Lord, we pray that you, would, um, that you would quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, so that we can understand your word and think clearly about it and, and listen to and hear from your Holy Spirit so that we can apply it to our hearts and to our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So what Paul just got finished saying in verse 7 was basically to uh, not pay what you owe to everyone. Pay taxes, revenue, respect, 
honor, right? Uh, whatever you owe to anyone, pay that to them, right? And so he kind of sums it up uh, here in verse 8, right? Owe no one anything, let no debt remain outstanding, right? Owe no one anything except the debt to love each other. So everything that you can uh, that you might potentially owe to anyone, pay it. Don't, you know, just get it off your balance sheet. Don't make people that you owe money or respect, don't make them chase you down and send you to collections to get what they are owed from you. Pay everyone what you owe, but there's one debt that you will never fully pay down, right? You'll always have an outstanding balance. You'll never be able to completely wash your hands of this one debt, and that is the debt to love your neighbor. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. So if you can love your neighbor and do it well and do it the way that God intends for you to to do it, then, then you are effectively Uh, obeying and fulfilling the entire law of God. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they are all summed up in this word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there are a ton of laws, right? 39 books in the Old Testament, that, and, and inside of them, there are hundreds and hundreds of laws, right? It's, scholars can't even agree on the exact number of how many laws. Tradition that dates back, you know, about a thousand years uh, says there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. But again, depending on how you parse it and organize it, there could be more than, than that. And so Paul's saying, I get it. That's a lot of, you know, like the, the, the Christian faith was not intended to be like some legalese that was written by lawyers with PhDs and then handed to a bunch of civilians that can't understand it. So he's, I get that that's a lot. I get that that's hard. So, so get to work on reading it and studying it and learning it and obeying it. But uh, as you do, like the, the, uh, a quick reference guide to help you on your path to obeying God's law is pretty much to remember and apply one law that in so doing, you will be obeying all the rest of God's laws, and that is to love your neighbor as your, yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul has this uh, syllogism argument here that says, the law, all of those hundreds of laws that we read in the Old Testament, all of them are effectively saying in one way or another, don't do wrong to your neighbor. That's kind of, that's the first, you know, that's the, you know, the first part of a syllogism. So all of the law is basically saying don't do wrong to your neighbor. And Paul is saying what's also true is that uh, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to do anything wrong to him. Therefore, conclusion to love your neighbor is to obey the law. To fail or refuse to love your neighbor is to fail or refuse to, love, to, to obey the law. Now, it's worth, it's worth considering that this idea from Jesus, that, that, obeying, that, that, that loving your neighbor is to fulfill and obey the law, is nothing new, it's nothing novel. Um, Paul is channeling pretty much the exact thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, uh, a religious leader comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the, in the law? And Jesus responds, The greatest commandment is, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor, depend and hang all of the law and all of the prophets. So Jesus says, you can sum up the entire Old Testament, all of the law of God, everything that God's commanded you to do in, in, in loving God and loving your neighbor, which effectively is to, to, love, to, to love others. So Jesus and Paul with him say that, that to love others is to fulfill the law of God. Which, of course, raises the question, what does it mean to love someone, right? If you're going to take all of these hundreds of laws that would take 
hours and hours, years and years to, to learn and, and memorize and be able to effectively obey them. If you're going to take them all and kind of distill it all down and say, you can, if you just love your neighbor, then you will effectively be doing all of that. Then we really need to, it's really important that we get right what it means to love your neighbor. We can't get that wrong because it, it so much hinges on it, so much, is, so much weight is, is bearing down on it that we really need to know what it means to love your neighbor. I imagine that much of the world that's opposed to God does not love God, does not care for God at all. I imagine that most of the people in the world, if they were to hear that, that Paul and Christ before him both said that all of the laws in the Old Testament are effectively summed up by just saying, love your, love your neighbor. If you can do that, you're obeying the law. I imagine much of the world would hear that and say, yes, amen, right? That's what we want. That's what we want everyone to do. So we are in agreement. A- amen to that. Everyone loves the idea of love as long as they get to be the ones who say what love is. And what's interesting is if you, if you listen to the world and listen to them talk about love, you'll actually hear the world kind of talk out of both sides of its mouth depending on when it's convenient for it. So sometimes uh, the world... It's going to say, all right, here's what love is. Here's the definition of love. The definition of love uh, resides in the, the, the lover, the person claiming to love others. They're the ones who get to say what love is and whether or not they are loving other people, right? Phrases like, love is love, right? Just means like, love is a feeling, it's internal no one can tell me whether or not I love someone else because that's something that only I can say. No one else can know what I'm feeling. I'm the only one who can know that, right? right. I, I, if, if I can say in all sincerity that I love someone, then I do. And no one else can call my sincerity into, into question. Love is an emotion. It's a feeling. No one can tell me otherwise. And so... You know, the world will, will kind of give a person license to say, you tell us whether you love this person, we will affirm you in it. You tell us, I mean, it works with spirituality too, right? Like, I believe in God, I love God. I may not be living a godly Christian life, I may not be obeying God's word, I may be living in open, blatant rebellion against God's laws, but if you come to me and point that out to me, my response is, who do you think you are? Calling into question whether I believe in God when I say I do. Calling into question whether I love God when I say, of course I, of course I love God. And you know how you can know that I love God? Because I said I do. Case closed. No one can call that into to question. So sometimes the world wants to define love in that way. It, it resides in the lover, the person claiming to love They get to say whether they love or not. No one can call them into question. The problem with that line of thinking is that it's not true. And and we all know that it's not true, right? So first of all, we can look at in Scripture and find that it's not true. When Jesus says things like John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So he's effectively saying, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter if you feel it deep. It doesn't matter if you could uh, say I love God and pass a lie detector test while doing it. That doesn't matter. What matters is if you, if you are keeping my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Ergo, if you are not keeping my commandments, then you do not love me. 1 John 4. If someone says I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. And he does not He who does not love his brother has not seen and cannot love God. Oh, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So Jesus in John 14 and John kind of channeling Jesus in 1 John 4 says, 
you don't get to, you as the love giver, do not get to define what love is and say, I love this person because I say that I do and I feel that I, that I do. And again, I, I don't even think that you need to have the Bible to know that this is, is wrong, right? I think, you know, if there was a, there's a husband who is beating his wife and said that, you know, and he's putting her in the hospital with multiple, you know, injuries and, and he's confronted about it. And he says, well, I may have physically abused my wife, but I still love her and no one can tell me otherwise. I'm, you don't have to have a Bible to call foul. I mean, even the most permissive, you know, behavioral psychologist who makes a living validating people's feelings and affirming, you know, that wanting them to express themselves, they're going to hear that and say, yeah, I'm not sure that you really love your wife if you keep uh, physically hurting her and putting her in the, the hospital. So, so we know, regardless of what we hear, we know that the definition of love and the, the ability to say what is and is not loving cannot reside exclusively in, internally in the person claiming to love others. It just doesn't hold up. But here's what's interesting. Sometimes the world's going to say that. Love is love. If I say I love God, then I do, and you can't tell me otherwise. Sometimes the world says that. It's in the, the person claiming to love someone else. But sometimes the world literally says the exact opposite and says, no, the definition of love, the person who gets to define love is the person receiving love. Right? If you try to love someone, they're the ones who get to set the terms and define what that is and what that looks like. And so you'll, you'll see this claim, you know, when you hear things like, if you're going to love me, then you have to accept me for who I am. You have to approve of me and the choices that I make. You have to affirm what I do and say, my identity, my lifestyle, my orientation. If you don't affirm everything uh, about me and everything that I'm doing, then you don't really love me, which is essentially uh, another way of saying, I, the person who is allegedly receiving love from someone else, I'm the one who gets to say what love is. If you claim to love me, then you have to submit to my terms of what love looks like. Which, of course, just, you know, means that, you know, the person trying to love their neighbor is at that point just held hostage, right? I love this person. I want to love them well, but they kind of have me over a barrel. They can say or do anything that they want, force me to say or do or think anything that they want, and if I refuse, then they just say that I am not loving them, which, again, I mean, again, is, is, is absurd, Biblically speaking, when we hear uh, God say things like Revelation chapter 3, those who I love, I rebuke, and I reprove, and I discipline. Right? So, So we know that no one likes discipline in the moment. It's unpleasant. It's painful. And so to receive, to be on the receiving end of, of painful discipline, we would immediately think that's not kind. That's not loving. But God says, no, it is loving. Effectively saying, you, the person receiving love from someone else, you don't get to define or set the terms of what love is. Same thing in Proverbs 27. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So there's going to be times when your friends who love you have to say or do things that you are not going to want to hear or experience, but they do that because they love you, and your enemies who do not love you are going to, you know, flatter you and, and say and do all of the things that you want to hear and, and experience. And so the person who is receiving love doesn't get to define love according to Scripture. And again, same thing. You don't need to have a Bible to call, to blow the whistle on that line of thinking either. Just common sense. If you're a parent, or if you've ever, you know, dealt with anyone, right? Young, old, you know, 
maybe people with special needs or uh, addiction issues, if you've ever tried to help anyone in any capacity ever, then you know from experience that, that oftentimes what people want and what they will interpret as in their best interest and therefore loving is not necessarily what they need and what actually is really in their best interest. Most meals that we serve my kids, I try to make them eat vegetables, drink milk and water. Most meals, if given the opportunity, they would probably just eat candy and, you know, drink, you know, sugary juice or soda. So I don't withhold the thing that they want and give them the thing that I know is good for them because because that's unloving. I do it because I don't want them to get cavities and diabetes, right? I, I do it because I want, I, I actually love them and I'm trying to give them what is really in their, their best interest. So the, the lover, the person claiming to love someone else can't be the one who decides what love is lest they um, treat people however they want, abuse them, and then claim that they, you know, appeal to this subjective feeling of love. Also, the person receiving love from other people can't be the one who decides what love is, lest they, you know, insist that people treat them exactly as they want to be treated, even if it's not really in their best interest. Neither one of those is right, and both of those are things that you will hear the world say uh, at any given moment, depending on what's more convenient for it. Right? The world will say, when I am loving someone else, then I, the love get to say what love is. I get to say what's most loving. But when someone else is attempting to love me, then I, the person receiving the love, get to say what love is and get to say what is most loving. Of course, the common thread that runs through both of those is me. I. I'm the one. I get to be the, the authority. I get to be the one who sets the term. In these situations over here, I get to be the one who gets, what, gets to do what I want and treat people how I want. In these situations over here, I am the one who gets to insist on being treated exactly as I want to be treated. It's always about me and what I want, and I'm in charge. Which, frankly, is a pretty good description of sin. To say, I get what I want, I'm in charge, I think about myself, I look out for myself, I always want to get my way, even if it hurts others, even if it comes at their expense. It's kind of how the Bible describes sin. So the lover can't be the one who decides what love is. The, the, love, the person receiving love can't be the one who dictates what is and is not loving. And the reality is that the definition of love, what is loving and what is not loving, it has to be tethered to something outside of ourselves so that it's not subject to all of the changes and variances that are inherent to us as creatures. Love, what love is, has to be rooted in something constant and unchanging and eternal. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Otherwise, it's just the flavor of the month that comes as a result of what any given person is feeling in any given moment, which incidentally is exactly how the Bible describes what love is, something that's constant and unchanging and eternal. In 1 John 4, we read, let us love one another because love is from God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And God has manifested his love by sending his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins so that we might live through him. So the definition of love is God. God is God is the one who, who says and determines what love is and what things are loving. And God is the most constant thing that there is, the most unchanging thing that there is, the most eternal thing that there, that there is. God is the one who defines love. Which 
has far-reaching implications. The, the reality that, that love is defined by and re- a reflection of God and who God is has far-reaching implications. I think sometimes we might get this backwards, right, when we're thinking, just because it it's, it's easier to make sense. Sometimes we think that we have in our mind this abstract picture of love or good or right or true. We have this picture of what, like, we, we, we know instinctively what those things are, and then we look at God, and then we evaluate God to see if he measures up to the standards that we have constructed in our minds, right? Here's what I know to be good because of how I feel. Here's who God is and, and what he says he is. And let me see if God measures up. Whew. Like fortunately for God, he happens to measure up to my standard of what good is. That was a close one. But that's, that's not how the Bible understands what love and good and right. And like th- These things are not abstract. In fact, if you, right, my guess is that for the majority of people that walk away from the faith, the majority of people that deconstruct, it's because they've, they've gotten this wrong, right? They don't understand that God is, God is who he is, and what is loving, any given act is or is not loving, depending on whether it conforms to who God is. Any given action is or is not good or true or right, depending on whether it conforms to who God is. They've mixed it up and they've said, no, 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 there's right and good and true. It exists here. And then there's God, and, and we evaluate God based on whether or not he conforms to these ideas of good and right and true. And if you get that mixed up, then you know, let that run its trajectory and you end up saying things like, well, it's, it's sending someone to hell for eternity is not good or loving because I don't think that it is. I don't feel that it is. So if God says that he does, then God cannot be good or loving. I don't believe in him anymore. Or condemning someone for consensual behavior that seems arbitrary to me, is neither good nor loving. If God does that, then he cannot be good or loving, so I don't uh, believe. I know what I think good is. God does not measure up to my understanding of what good is. Therefore, he is not worth believing in and living for. But John doesn't say, here's what love is. John says, love is from God. Love is defined by God. If God does it or wants us to do it, then it is loving. And if God does not do it or does not want us to do it, it is not loving. So a good working definition of love is not to look at the lover and ask, what does he think is loving when he's doing it to someone else? Or look at the person receiving love and saying, what do they experience from others as loving? Because those questions will yield faulty answers. Rather, a good working definition of love is that we look to God. And in fact, you know, John does this later in the chapter. He says, this is how God manifested his love to us. By sending his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins so that we might live through him. So, so God's, here's what God does, which is therefore loving because of the fact that God did it. God moves toward his people. He does what is in their best interest, not necessarily what they think is in their best interest in the moment, but what he knows to actually be in our best interest long term in all of eternity. And he does that even if it's costly, even if it comes at great expense to himself. And that, I think, is a, is a pretty good working definition of what it means to love someone. To do what is in their best interest, what is really in their real, true, ultimate, final best interest, even if they don't think it is, and even if it, is, even if it comes at great expense to yourself. I actually took a straw poll this week and reached out to some pastors and theologians and asked them to define love for me and got a number of responses back one says 
Love is the resolve to relate to someone in a way that honors God and tends toward their ultimate good. Love is having joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. Love is the benevolent disposition to act, uh, the benevolent disposition and act of doing good to another. And finally, love is uh, to desire and work and be willing to suffer in order to give the one that you love the fullest and longest happiness. A handful of different definitions for love. And as I'm, as I'm receiving these back from my, my friends, uh, I'm realizing that there's a, there's a common thread that runs through them as well. The common thread that runs through the, the world's definition of love is me, I, I get to say. When I'm loving someone else, I get to say. When someone else is trying to love me, I get It's me. But the common thread that runs through Scripture's definition of love uh, is that it's, it's good. It's doing what is good for others. What is, what is in their ultimate, final, true, real good. Not what they want, not what's going to make them happy right here, right now, but what is actually good. What is going to give them the deepest, longest happiness long term. Right, so if someone if someone comes to my two year old, but if uh, you know, you know, like some generous benefactor, like from Great Expectations or something, right? They they come to my two year old and say, "I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to let your dad choose for you, but I'm going to give you a gift, either a marshmallow right now, or a billion dollars a month from now." And I ask, yeah, Theo, all right, man, like you've got this big choice. Yeah, I, want, I want to take your input. I'm going to make the final decision, but I want to hear. He would say, I definitely want the marshmallow for sure. Like hand it up. I don't know what money is. I don't care. I can't count to, you know, none of that, none of that stuff. I'm telling you, buddy, college is paid for. Generations, right? House, well, I don't care. Like I want, like there's a, there's a tangible thing that can be put in my hand right now that I can eat and that I want. So if I disregard his desires, and choose the, the, you know, the billion dollars rather than the marshmallow, uh, is, that, is that an unloving act? Or is it actually loving because I am thinking of and anticipating what is going to be not just, not what he wants right now, but what is actually really in his best interest long term. Not what he thinks is in his best interest right now, but what really is in his best interest long term. And that's how the Bible understands love. To actively try to do which, with that which is ultimately in someone's best interest. And so we can take that definition and we can then plug it in to Romans 13 and know what it means. Like, if we're trying to think about, okay, how can we fulfill the law of God? Well, easy. Love your neighbor. Well, what does that mean? Plug that in. To love your neighbor means to... to actively seek to try to do that which is in their best interest, that which will bring them the most joy and happiness long-term, even if it comes at great expense to yourself. Do that consistently to people around you, and you will be loving them well, which means you will be, a, which means you will be obeying, fulfilling the law of God. So it doesn't mean... Right? It doesn't mean, to love others doesn't mean I have this warm, fuzzy feeling about them. It doesn't mean uh, I'm going to affirm them and do exactly what they want me to say and do in the moment. It means I'm going to do what is really actually in their best interest for their, for their good. Which, of course, when we understand the nature of, of the gospel, the nature of God, we quickly realize that leaving someone in their sin, separated from God, headed for hell, and we refuse to invite them to trust in Jesus so that they can be saved from God's wrath, that act is not loving. In fact, it is inherently unloving. Affirming someone's sin enabling it, celebrating it, telling them that it's good and fine and that they don't need to repent of it, 
even though their sin is actively evoking the judgment and wrath of God that they will experience if they don't repent of it, that act is not loving. It is inherently unloving. So we can't read Romans 13 and import the world's definition of love into it. We have to read Romans 13 defining love as God defines it to do what is in others' best interest, even what is actually in their best interest, even if it's uh, difficult or costly for us. So that's 13 verses 8 through 10. Love your neighbor and fulfill the law of God. And then in verses 11 through 14... Paul says, here's one practical way that you can love those around you. Put aside the deeds of darkness and walk in the light of Christ. It's like, it's the, uh, it's the put your own oxygen mask on before you put someone else's oxygen mask on uh, idea, right? If you're going to love others, it's probably going to involve discipling them and training them to walk in repentance and godliness because that's what's in their best interest. But you can't train someone else to do something that you don't know how to do. You can't train someone else to do something that you are not currently doing yourself. So these last few verses are dedicated to instructing Christians how to live godly lives themselves as a way of and in view of loving their neighbor. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Sleep is used in these uh, verses as a metaphor for a life of moral carelessness and laxity. I'm going to live however I want to live. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to gratify the desires of my sinful nature with no regard for God and his commands, no regard for others and their needs. I'm going to, do, I'm going to live for myself. That's what Paul means by sleep. And he says, Christian, now is the time to wake up from that. Not wake up to the injustice that's baked into society all around you that you've never noticed before, not wake up to the reality of how much a victim you are so that you can leverage it against the people that you think are more privileged than you. Wake up meaning stop living the life of sin that you have been living, the life of sin that you are tempted to continue living in. Wake up from that, put it aside, leave it behind, and walk in repentance and godliness. And here is why. The reason why Paul wants Christians to wake up from their life of moral carelessness and sin is that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So it's urgent. It's paramount that we, that we live lives that glorify God because time is short. Time is short. Forever's a long time. Hell is hot, right? It, it, so so it's, it's urgent that we do this sooner rather than later because, we, you know, so, so sleep is kind of, uh, um, you know, a, a metaphor for the life of, of sinfulness. Salvation here is kind of referring to Jesus' return, the second coming of, of Christ. And Paul is saying that time, that event is drawing near. I'm not a big rapture in times guy. There's a lot of Christians that are really big into the end times. They read the left behind books. They've spent a lot of time on their rapture chart. It's immaculate. It's very detailed. It's hanging up on the wall of their bomb shelter. There's a lot of Christians that, you know, that's, I'm not that guy. I read the Bible. I'm not even sure when I read the Bible that there's going to be a rapture, if I'm being honest. Um, it's very clear that Jesus is going to return. He's going to judge his enemies. He's going to save his people. So I believe all of that about the end times. But here's what I I do believe about the second coming of Christ and the, the end times. I think that the closest that we've ever been to it happening in all of church history, in all of human history, is right now, today, this exact moment I think the return of Christ is a real thing that's going to happen in time and space, and I think we've never been as close to it ever than we are right now. So Paul is saying, 
Wake up from sleep. Wake up from living your, the, a life of ungodliness because Jesus is going to come back. It's getting closer and closer and closer. Every passing moment, we're closer to Christ. It could be today. It could be a billion years. But it's coming, and it's not getting further out. It's getting closer. It's looming. So live in light of it, live in view of it. Verse 12, the night is far gone, almost gone. The day is at hand, almost here. So he's saying the night, which is this age, this present evil age that we're living in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, this evil age, this night is almost over. I don't know when it's going to be over, but it's not. we're not going back in it. We're going forward toward the dawn. The dawn is almost here. We don't know when it's going to get here, but it's not getting further away. It's getting closer. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The works of darkness are the behaviors. It's, it's the sleep, right? Works of darkness. It's the, it's the behaviors that are suited to and appropriate for nighttime. There's a reason why most crimes take place at night. It's dark. You can't see. There's a reason why when there's a natural disaster and there's like an area-wide power outage prolonged for hours or days, there's all kinds of you know, looting and, and you know, criminal behavior starts to happen then because you know, it's dark. When it, when it gets dark, people's behavior tends to get dark. Because, because the, the idea is this is being done in secret. There's no accountability for it. And Paul is saying... It may be nighttime still, but don't live like it's nighttime. It, we may be between the, two, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, in this present evil age, but don't live as if Jesus is never going to come back. Instead, prepare for the impending reality that he is going to come back by living as if he is going to come, come back. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, nor in quarreling or, or jealousy. Those are behaviors that are associated with darkness, vices, addictions, self-gratification, anger, violence. Paul says that's not how Christians live. That's how non-Christians live. That's behavior that's associated with darkness, this present evil age done by people who don't love God, don't have a relationship with God. But Christians are to live like it's daytime in light of the return of Christ that is going to happen. And here's how they can do that. Here's how we can do that. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So two things, kind of one positive and one negative about how we can how we can live a life that, that glorifies God. And so, do the, the, the negative one first, to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Meaning, if you want to fight against sin, eradicate sin, kill sin in your life, then you have to be ruthless with it. You have to be violent with it. You have to fight hard to ensure that sin doesn't even, you don't give it even the smallest provision. Don't even give it the slightest foothold in your life. If you're drinking too much, fight against it. If it happens when you go to a particular restaurant, don't go there anymore, even if you really like it. If it happens when you hang out with a person, with a particular group of people, don't hang out with them anymore, even if you really uh, enjoy them. If it happens at home, then throw your alcohol away. Dump it down the drain. If you're tempted to sleep with your boyfriend, girlfriend, don't, you know, spend time with them in public during the, the daytime. Set up curfew and adhere to it. If you're, you know, whatever, right? If you're married and you're tempted by other people, stop hanging out with that person. If you're looking at inappropriate content on your devices, block it. Set up the thing with accountability. Stuff. Throw it in the trash. Give it away to someone who wants, you know, Right? If you're tempted to be angry, violent, jealous, fight against it. Pray about it. 
Talk with an elder. Talk with a Christian counselor. Ask someone to disciple you. Ask someone to hold you accountable. Right? The point is, if you want to fight against sin, it doesn't happen through passively, maybe I will, maybe I won't, we'll just see, we'll let it kind of run its course. You have to be intentional and active, and you have to, you have to be ruthless in how you fight against sin. We all know how to be ruthless. We're all ruthless with people that we don't like. We're ruthless with people that we don't agree with. We're ruthless with people whose politics are different than ours. We have no time for them. No patience for them. We don't care about anything they have to say. We're annoyed by them. We're disgusted by them. We're going to make no provision for them whatsoever. Paul is saying that ruthlessness, when you aim it at a person that God loves is sinful, don't do it. But instead, take that ruthlessness and channel it, take that intensity and aim it at your own sin, your own selfishness, your own deeds of darkness, and use it to fuel and power and fight against your own sin. Be ruthless with it, be violent with it, mortify it and kill it, lest it kills you. That's one way that Paul instructs us to, you know, put aside, to cast off the works of darkness, is to make no provision for them, be violent with them, be ruthless with them. And the other is to put on, it's the positive, it's the flip side of the coin, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, to put on the armor of light, meaning... Yes, be ruthless with your sin, be violent with your sin, fight against it, but don't focus all of your time and all of your attention and all of your effort on the sins that you are trying to overcome, lest you end up obsessing over them and dwelling on them and being even more tempted by them. Instead, focus your time and attention and energy and effort on Jesus Christ and how great he is, and how glorious he is, and how beautiful he is, and how excellent he is. And you will find that your des- as you do that, your desires for sin will start to lose their power and become weaker and weaker. I've mentioned it before, but um, I think arguably the single sermon that has had the most formative, impact on my soul as a Christian is one called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by a Puritan named Thomas Chalmers. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the point of the sermon is you don't kill sin by trying really hard to suppress your desire to sin because it's a losing battle and it will never work. We all have desires and they all, it's whack-a-mole. It's just, you can't, you can't keep all of your desires down and suppressed forever. So he says, instead of trying to kill sin that way, you kill sin by cultivating and nurturing and growing a different desire, a new desire, a desire for Jesus. And then that new desire will choke out and ultimately weaken and kill the old desires that you had to sin. The new affection that you have for Jesus will have an expulsive power. It will expel the old affections that you had. So what we, there's a hymn, right, that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So how do we cast aside the works of darkness. We do it by making no provision for them, being ruthless and violent with them, and we do it by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, cultivating real and true and deep affections for and desires for him, and then letting those new affections expel our old affections for sin and for self-gratification. So verses 8 through 10, love your neighbor because love is the fulfillment 
of the law of God in verses 11 through 14, put aside the deeds of darkness and walk in the light of Christ. And that is what we are committing to do together when we come to the table and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Right? When we come to celebrate the Supper together, each and every one of us is coming effectively to the table saying, I am a Christian. I love Jesus. I trust in Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his broken body, his shed blood to save me. I love Jesus and I am committed to living as if I love Jesus. I'm committed to living like a Christian, to loving my neighbor, to walking in repentance and godliness. We're all saying that together and then we are all affirming each other as we say it together and then we eat and drink declaring that reality to ourselves and to one another and to, the, and to the world, and to God himself. I trust Jesus, and I am committed to living for him. That's what we say when we eat and drink at the table. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup, And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, you are a part of the people of God, then this is your opportunity to remember the gospel together and to celebrate the gospel together as a church family. I'm going to pray. Musicians will, um, will come up and start playing. You can come forward down the middle aisle. Jeff and I will be here to distribute the elements. Go back to your seats along the, the sides. Take a moment. Pray. Thank God that he has saved you through Jesus and then eat and drink to celebrate that reality. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust him as your savior and to hold fast to him so that you can be reconciled to him and enjoy his loving presence forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that the gospel is true. We thank you that Jesus died on a cross to save us from the wrath of God. And Lord Jesus, we look to you and we trust in you and we pray that we could live lives of godliness that glorify you. We pray that we could love our neighbor and in so doing fulfill the law of God. And we pray that we could put aside the deeds of darkness and walk in the light of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.